Welcome to the Grow In Podcast, where we're in company with leaders from the world's best brands and share the next chapter of their growth story. I'm your host, Sandy Khan. In the first series, we grow in innovation in company with Accenture and co-host Head of Innovation for Europe, the brilliant Lucy Cooper. Lucy and I find out what it takes to become a C-level board member for the world's largest global fashion search platform and what it means to take it to the next level. This is the future of how everybody's going to shop because we are really kind of creating something that's never been done before, which is like searching, browsing, discovery for fashion, connecting millions of customers with millions of products. We have the world's biggest fashion data set. Even at day one, half the company was data scientists and engineers. So data has always been at the core. Partners are saying, I see you beyond transactional. You're actually a strategic partner. And we have 8 million products now, which is about 35 times the size of our biggest retailer. I was the first woman to come into the C-suite at List. A really amazing company that's, you know, helping 160 million customers. It's kind of a big deal. It's a roller coaster. You're going to have the highest highs and the lowest lows. I've learned that I don't have to sleep and coffee is my best friend. I can't sell anything. I can only sell the things I believe in because I am a horrible liar. And anybody that's played poker with me knows this for a fact. I feel like I spent all my money on Depop. You know, Gucci is taking risks. It's never happened before. Sweatpants are over, thank God. What's happening in fashion? How do we build a product that's actually going to help? You know, when you're building something that's never existed before, there's no roadmap to follow. We actually don't exist as a business if we don't have value creation. That is the chief partnerships officer at List, where their biggest competitor is Google itself. Real stories curated with love for you. Jenny Cousins, Thank you so much for being in company with Lucy and me. Jenny, you know I'm your biggest fan. And if you didn't know, you now do. I love everything from your American accent to your taste in luxury fashion. You have a lot of nice stuff. And I'm not alone. I've seen you in action when you speak on our leadership panels and you make those panels pop. When you're talking, I'm watching the audience and I see people sit up, the corners of their mouths start to shift upwards. And before you know it, you have them laughing with you. And that emotional connection you're able to create makes you unforgettable. Today, the stage is all yours. We have time to get the full movie length version of your story. And I want to learn about your background and your journey to List. And let's start at the beginning, shall we? Because it's the early years that can really influence who we become later. And when I say the beginning, I really mean the beginning. Like, where were you born? I know you were born in the States, but what city? And give us a glimpse of your childhood. So yeah, begin at the beginning, as they say. So I was born in Bremerton, Washington, which is actually just a suburb outside of Seattle. My dad was in the Navy. So that was kind of why we were there uh, to begin with. But then when I was about 
four or five, we moved to West Virginia because my dad, my dad is a, is an orthopedic surgeon. So he's a doctor and he was basically given two choices in a life path. One was to go work in Washington, DC for the National Institute of Health, or the other was to go to West Virginia. And because he was a huge fan of like whitewater rafting and kayaking and like being near water, he was like, oh, let's just go to West Virginia. Sounds like a fun place, Jenny. It's an absolutely perfect place to grow up in the 70s when I grew up because it was um, gorgeous and fun and easy. And, and and with your siblings? Yeah, I'm youngest of four. I have two sisters and a brother. They live all over the world. So I've got a, a sister and a brother in the US. And then my other sister lives in France. And then my husband's sister lives in Germany. So a very like, global, everybody all over the place. But I think, you know, back to the, to the journey, um, because I don't want this podcast to be like 10 hours long. Hang on <laughs> there a minute, Jenny. You mentioned your husband there. When did you meet your hubby? So I met him. It sounds like one of those like goofy, like Hallmark movies. But um, they're the best. So bring it on. <laughs> I met him on my junior year abroad. I basically had my junior year uh, at university and I'd spent half the year in London and half the year in Florence. And so the first half is when I met my husband. So I was here in London at King's doing English um, and he was also doing the same. So he was at the time, yeah, 19 years old. Both very young. Which is bananas because he's definitely not 19 now. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so met him then and then, you know, had gone back to uni, you know, sort of went on and had other jobs. And then we we reconnected because I was I was working for Harvard University at the time and had a work trip to London and reconnected. And actually, I always joke that his mother um, actually reintroduced us because I, I knew his, you know, I knew the name, but I didn't know his number. I didn't know where he was working because we'd stayed out of touch because it had been a while. And I called his mom and she said, oh, he talks about you all the time. Matchmaking at its best there. <laughs> so yeah, so that's kind of how I ended up. Ultimately, I came, yeah, I came for love and stayed. We love the fact that you stayed in London. You have over two decades of rich experience, Jenny. Needless to say, you've acquired so much wisdom. Let's start with your journey in the US before you moved to London. Let's look at your experiences as tiny little stepping stones to LIS because each one of those stones will have shaped your fit for LIST. As with, with many people, the path has not been linear, right? If I had made this plan, I don't know if anybody would have believed it, the kind of way, the way that it turned out. My very first career goal when I finished uh, university was to be a museum curator. That was 100% my vision. I was like, I am going to work in a museum. I want to work in the Met. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be a curator. So I had worked with one of the leading museum directors. So the National Gallery of Art in Washington, the head of the National Gallery of Art um, was a guy named Jay Carter Brown, who's the Brown of Brown University. You know, his dad was one of the monuments men. So this kind of amazing person who was kind of the creator of the museum blockbuster. So there was a big exhibition that went around the world at the time called the Treasure Houses of Britain. He really spearheaded this idea of the modern um, museum blockbuster exhibition. So working with him was just honestly one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I was like third assistant. I was definitely not like very senior at all. It was like first job type stuff. And I was, yeah, taking, I mean, this is dating me, but I was, a lot of my job was like to take dictation. So he'd put um, little cassette tapes in files and I'd have to go to his house, pick them up. And then I would dictate letters. So it would be things to like, you know, I am pay the architect or, you know, Pamela Harriman, who's like Churchill's granddaughter. Churchill's 
granddaughter. It was just crazy stuff because he obviously was just so, you know, working in a world where he was just, you know, working with so many different amazing people in in the world of, you know, art philanthropy. So that was just a great introduction. And so with that, I went to graduate school because obviously if you want to work in a museum, you have to have multiple degrees. So I did a master's degree in decorative arts history in New York at the Cooper Hewitt Museum, which is basically the equivalent to the Victorian Albert Museum, but in, in New York. So the Smithsonian Museum of Design. And then so you get your degree from Parsons School of Design. And I so I have a master's in decorative arts history with a focus on 19th century American furniture and 16th century Italian ceramics, which is pretty niche. It's very specific. (laughs) Um, Love to say I've used that in my day-to-day life, but but, I mean, I don't regret a second of it. And then, so when I was looking for the first professional opportunity postgraduate school, I met with a guy on an informational interview, a guy named Peebo Gardner, who is the grandson of Isabella Stewart Gardner, which if anybody is like interested in museums and the world's best museums, the Gardner Museum in Boston is like absolutely one of the most amazing. And it's a house museum. And it's where um, you'll probably know about it because it had the famous art heist of the Vermeers in the 90s. So anyway, met with Peebo and Peebo was like, I was like, oh, I want to I want to work in museums. What do you think? Like, what should I be doing? What do I need to know? And he was it was so funny because he said, look, I don't know if you're interested, but like, um, you know, I work for Harvard and I really need a fundraiser and I think you'd be really great. And I was like, well, I didn't go to Harvard and I've never fundraised, so I don't really know if this is a good idea. But he was like, really, I think leap of faith. I think you'd be good. Let's let's give it a go. So I did it because I was like, well, OK, let's see. It wasn't the path I expected, but I thought, well, try it and see what happens. My mantra is, and I've said this on other podcasts as well, is that your network is your net worth. And you've shown us how one conversation opened your mind and a door to a different path. And of course, you'll never know if it's the right fit or not until you walk the walk. Yeah. Um, so that was amazing. So I worked for for a couple of years fundraising at Harvard, which to be perfectly honest, if you're going to have a first job in the philanthropy sector, that is 100% the best place to train. So my boss was a guy named um, Dick Boardman who ran the Harvard College Fund. And honestly, it is, I mean, that's 200 people that do, It's it's like a it's like a machine. And it's so amazing because not only is it like the discipline and understanding like how to do this well and how to make the case, but you're also working for a place where you know this money is going to create the, you know, it's going to solve the problems of the future. So the people that give to Harvard and the and the people that come out of that university are the people that actually transform the world later. I mean, think about Mark Zuckerberg. I know he didn't finish, you know, Bill Gates didn't finish, but like... Yes, in my world, which is the recruiting space, it's where the best brands will flock to hire top talent. I mean, it's a competitive space as many great brands will go there to attract the best brains. The MBAs are paying for a superb education with access to top professors, but also the network. And I'll say it again, your network is your net worth. It's no joke. You know, it is obviously the epicenter of just, you know, amazing. And and it was also interesting because at the time when I was fundraising, Harvard had the biggest endowment in the world. So people would be like, why am I giving you money when they've got the biggest? And so there was a lot of like managing, um, you know, challenging conversations. And, you know, I was, I was quite young. It's, you know, it was it was 
crazy because one minute I'd be in LA meeting a film director and producer, and then I'd be in Wall Street meeting, you know, a banker, and then I'd be like at a phone-a-thon working with volunteers who were, you know, in their 80s. So, mm, great exposure to sales and BD at a very young age. It was a really great introduction to just the variability of like <laughs> exposure to different industries and different people. And also, you know, with the idea of making a case for something like, why should I do this? What's the point of this? And, you know, learned a lot. And then uh, that obviously, as part of my journey to get to London, I um, I ended up coming and working for the Science Museum because they needed a fundraiser. They needed somebody with that kind of experience to work there for a couple of years, which then interestingly led me into a kind of, again, another pivot. So again, this sort of started with museums, moved to fundraising, then moved to kind of more media advertising because I met someone at Condé Nast and I was thinking, you know, I've got these, I guess, effectively sales skills, but how do I turn that into something more commercial? Um, and something maybe a little bit more that that fits, you know, because I'm super interested in fashion and media, what would that look like? So that's kind of what led me to Condé Nast. For listeners who might not know, Condé Nast is a global media company producing some of the world's leading print, digital, video and social brands, including Vogue, GQ, The New Yorker, uh, Vanity Fair, Wired and many other cool brands. And it's really, you know, the early days of um, of effectively the digital properties, right? So I went to work at Vogue.com. There were three of us. By the time I left, I was there about eight years. By the time I left, it was 300 people. And it was like the biggest growth area in the business, having started from something where people were like, ah, the internet, I don't know what's going to happen here. It could turn into something. It, could, you know, it was really early days. Um, working at Vogue.com and working at Condé Nast and working with, you know, the amazing... Nicholas Coleridge and Dolly Jones and Abby Chisman, who kind of really spearheaded this whole vision of what this could be. And what it could be was massive. Like you said, you were there for eight years and you saw a 300% increase in headcount. That's huge. I know you would have been experienced and initiated tons of change. It's not a space for the faint-hearted. You can't hide. In a high-growth environment, only those who thrive on new challenges and want to keep growing will excel. And that's you. You were growing and leading teams across advertising and then sales at Vogue, an amazing global brand. And I noticed a pattern in your growth, Jenny. I've told you this before. I don't know if you remember, but every one to two years, you move oh, okay. to the next challenge, whether it's internally inside the company or to another role externally. It's it's almost like you have an internal clock. <laughs> okay, it's 2010 and you leave Vogue at Condé Nast and you move to a fashion company, an online fashion company called Netta Porter, which was about 10 years old, only 10 years old when you joined. How did they find you and why did you take that step? in your journey? Net-A-Porte was one of my clients and they were, uh, they basically headhunted me because they said, look, we know that we are seen as a retailer, but we also know that we are a media business. And that's again, you know, Natalie's vision for Net-A-Porte was like content and commerce together because she came from Condé Nast. Ah, 
power of a network. Yeah, um, she was at Tatler. So they were sort of saying, look, we know that we have this audience we can monetize. We know that there's more here to create this like media empire that we would like to create. So they headhunted me to kind of be their first publisher. Um, and so I joined really early days of Netaport. It was like 500 people. Wow. Now, this was an exciting time. The founder, Natalie, as you said, has a big vision to create a media empire. So this is very new, very different for a retail brand. The Netta Porter website is very innovative. It is presented in the style of a magazine and a video series. Again, you had a very visible, high profile role where you were working directly with Natalie to make this vision a reality. You know, Building strong relationships is, is for me, the golden thread of every role and every job that I've ever done. It doesn't matter if it's museums or fundraising or media or retail or fashion. The idea is like really problem solving for people and, and making and making things easier for them and really building those relationships so that they, you know, you're, you're, you're driving value, really. That's still true today. I mean, I think that's why I love, love my job, because it's constantly about how can we make it better? How do we, how do we kind of build this relationship even, even further? And then I think the other thing that's probably a common link, if I, if I'm able to kind of have the hindsight to kind of go back, is that in every role of these, it's sort of, it started from nothing and turned into something. And it's this idea of making a difference, making an impact and kind of this growth trajectory of like, you know, nothing to something is really, I think really what fuels me and really what drives me and makes me excited. And I, you know, you can tell that I, I absolutely genuinely am excited about everything that I've done and also everything I'm doing and everything I will do. So I think that's the kind of key thing is like, never feeling like it's done, you know, never feeling like, oh, that's fine. I've made it or whatever. That's just the weirdest thing to me. I can't even imagine. There's always more and more and more. And I say to Chris, the founder of List all the time, I'm like, I'm so grateful that he has set the bar so high for what the expectation is because I am I can never settle. I'm constantly moving. And, and you know, Mark Seba, who is this amazing CEO who worked with myself and Natalie at Netaporte, he would say, our biggest enemy is complacency. And I think about it all the time. The minute you start going, oh, well done, you, you know, you're done. You have a strong growth mindset. You're driven to continuously improve. I wonder where that stems from. Maybe we'll come back to that. This attitude that you have, the growth mindset, makes you a super fit for your role at List as Chief Partnerships Officer, where there's no limits. You're literally writing the rule book as you go. So as a senior leader, how do you how do you help others to create a growth mindset in a very, very, very fast growing business where you're doing things that haven't been done before? So you need people to feel safe, psychologically safe, to think like innovators. That means taking calculated risks and failing along the way. Now, I used to work at Google. Google did a study which shows that teams that make mistakes are ultimately more productive, more creative. And of course, Google tries to create a super culture. But during my time there, I didn't feel I could say to my manager, I worked in Google London and she worked in Mountain View in the US. I didn't feel like I could say, 
I don't know. I think it has to be about creating a culture where people can feel safe to talk, make mistakes and trust the leadership. What what do you think about failure and psychological safety at work and how do you try to harness it to enable people to grow? You know, for me, I truly fundamentally believe that you cannot grow if you don't fail because that's the foundation to learn. I've never approached my work or my personal life in any other way than being honest, vulnerable. You know, what you see is what you get. You know, we're talking about selling before. I can't sell anything. I can only sell the things I believe in because I am a horrible liar. And anybody that's played poker with me knows this for a fact. You know, one of the things that I am most proud of is that when I wake up in the morning, Going into List, I know that we have, you know, set the company culture off on a really great foundation. And I think the reason that that has happened is because we learned by the big mistakes we made early on. Um, For example, you know, when I joined, it was 40 people. We doubled to about 120 in about a year. And immediately, because we had not codified the culture, we had not sort of said, you know, this is what we believe it got really tricky really fast. And I think that's a huge mistake that we made early on, which has allowed us to really invest in it. And I think a lot of people maybe give lip service to this concept of values or people or culture, but I will tell you hand on heart, Chris, our founder, Emma, who's our COO and our people team has really invested now to the point where I know that all of the success we've had is because we have created this opportunity to say, this is what we expect. These are the values that we that we need. And I think Emma's transformed the business. I mean, we would certainly not be in the position we're in today if it weren't for her and Chris and all the hard work of, of everybody in that team. But one of our values is humble, trusted ownership. And with that, with that trust, you need to be, you need to be honest, right? You need to say, this is when it's going well, this is when it's not going well. And and so I think, you know, when you're building something that's never existed before, there's no roadmap to follow and mistakes are going to be made. And I think they have to happen to get you to where you need to be. And I think, I think a lot of this is learned behavior. You know, you talked about Google and what that environment was like. I think for me, you know, one of my Greatest experiences is one of my uh, former bosses, actually at List, uh, Jose, he really created an environment where I could go, I don't actually know how to do this thing. And I feel like I should, you know, you get to this point where you're like, I have the C next to my name. I should know everything, you know? And I was literally like, crap, what do I do? Like, I don't know. I'm actually really worried about this. And I think what he created, you know, and I think what he's, he really taught me was like, you need to really focus on each person and what motivates them and change your style accordingly. And I always thought that was so interesting because I never really heard it in that way. And I think what I really loved working with him was he created an environment where I could be vulnerable and be like, oh my God, I literally am freaking out. Am I the dumbest person that ever lived? <laughs> but also, you know, he really, he knew what would drive me. You know, I'm very target driven. So would be like, Jenny, you know, this target. And I'd be like, oh, I'm on it. You know, so like he was, it was just a really nice combination of knowing that I could say things that were making me feel like I was an absolute idiot, but that I wasn't going to get fired. You said a couple of things there I want to highlight. Firstly, you remind us that everyone and anyone can feel vulnerable, even highly successful leaders with a C next to their name. 
Also, I really like Jose's approach of honing in on your strength or motivating factors to make you feel psychologically safe versus telling you that he's going to give you some feedback to be more like him. Generally, I think most people want to do good work. And when they feel stuck, they don't really want feedback. They just want to be understood. And that means having a trusted relationship with their manager. And that means you have to give your most precious personal resource, your time, to your most precious company resource, your people. The whole theme of this podcast is innovation and companies that are ruled by fear cannot innovate because you're stuck, right? You're stuck in this idea of like, I'm too scared to change. So honestly, if you do not as a leader create that um, that vulnerable space, create that opportunity where people, and I'm not saying like, oh, yeah, you messed up. That's great. Like, I'm not saying like index into that too much, but just allow it to happen because you do, you know, we all do it. And a lot of times I'll say to my team, this is a thing I did that was really bad. And I freaked out and I thought I was going to die and it all worked out. And I think, you know, it's really important that they know that a, I know what it's like to mess up. I've totally, I do it all the time. Right. But also that it's really important because these are the things you don't remember, like when times were good, you only remember the, the things that, that go wrong. You know, you talk about failure. I had someone in, in my team make a mistake recently. And, you know, this wasn't like a simple like, oh, a little tiny mistake. It was like a big mistake, a costly mistake. And what I was happy about is that they weren't scared to tell me. They basically were like, this has happened. This is why it happened. This is what we're going to do moving forward. And I think that's exactly what you want. At least you're blessed with a founder and a leadership team that is creating a workplace where your employees feel like they they have a voice. Every good leader wants their teams to excel, right? But in reality despite their best intentions, leaders are only human too and super time crunched. So they're going to make mistakes. They're going to miss the signs. So let's hope that at some point, Jenny will no doubt have the tech to help leaders to sense check their teams for levels of psychological safety. Teeny tiny update that emotion sense checking technology that I just mentioned is here and it's been developed by Accenture and one of their partners. Lucy and I talk about it in the next section of this podcast. It's intriguing. I mentioned earlier that you have a very strong growth mindset. Throughout your non-linear career path, you will have experienced setbacks. Where does your growth mentality and drive come from? Failure as a concept is learned, right? In general, like not only do you learn from failure, but like I think back to one of my earliest memories of like not having something work out the way I wanted to. And this is a very weird example, but um, it's quite funny just as an example. And I think that's sort of in your archive of your brain, which is I, um, when I was about 10, I had applied to um, be like a local TV anchor at the local TV news show, which was a show called Kids Mag. And I, I mean, it was literally, I thought about it day and night. I was like, oh, I'm going to do this, you know, and I didn't get it. I didn't get it the first time. So the very first time I went and I didn't get it and I was crushed. And then what was interesting is that I got the opportunity to audition again and I did get it. And I think that experience of like second chance and just because it didn't work out the first time doesn't mean it won't work out again. 
has really, really set me up. I mean, it's a funny thing. You know, you think something that happened at 10, how could that still continue to kind of have resonance so much later? But it does. And I say to my kids all the time, like, just because it didn't go the way you thought doesn't mean it's over. Like, that's just the beginning of that conversation or that journey or that plan, because, you know, you don't give up. You just go, oh, okay, I'm going to take that. Right. And I'm going to learn from that. And I think that's a really important skill to learn for any leader, which is like, it doesn't always work out the first time. And that's okay. I would love to see the 10 year old Jenny Cousins performing. <laughs> Let me just say this was not a great look. I had braces. I had a, you know, crazy hair. Like the whole thing is like, thank God YouTube was not around then. So let's hone in on leadership traits because as you're a woman in business and an entrepreneur, having worked with highly successful entrepreneurs like Natalie, the founder of Netta Porter, and now Chris, the founder of List, what skills will future leaders need to be a success in business? For me, the advice I would have for future leaders is the same advice I'd have for the for the leaders today. Like, I don't think there's actually a huge difference. Um, but I think the number one piece of advice I would say is get comfortable with change. It's inevitable. Secondly, communication is so powerful. What you say, how you say it, how often you say it, these are really important tools. Even within LIST, we have these certain strategic objectives and we have really learned the power of repeating it, sharing it, having um, forums where people can ask questions. So it's really interesting. We did one the other day. We did a deep dive on one of the, the areas that I that I run. And I we sort of did like an hour long deep dive of like, here's what it is. Here's how we decided it. This is why we're doing it. And then there was like a Q&A at the end. And we did it individually for each team and each bet. And it was crazy because something that I was like, okay, this could be kind of, I mean, I'm excited about it because I love it. It's my job. But like for other people, it might be a dry topic. And they were, the, the feedback we had was like, that was amazing. I totally get it now. And that like context and clarity and communication, like, I don't think I really knew how powerful that was until honestly, I would say fairly recently. I would say during COVID, the communication, the fact that we couldn't all be together physically has really forced me to understand the power of how, if you do it well, how transformative that can be. So I think the third one is that empathy is essential. I think it doesn't matter what role you do, what level you are, if you do not put yourself in the other person's shoes and you do not think, okay, how am I, how would I receive this? What would this be like? Then you are not doing your job properly. I think another thing I've noticed a lot lately is the ability to constantly see the larger picture versus just your part in that picture. So one of the challenges of, of being in this role is like, I can see the whole company and I'm lucky I get to work with these people and I understand, I have the context of like, why are we doing what we're doing? What's happening? I get to talk to Chris all the time about the vision and my team won't necessarily have that context. So it's that balancing of like, here's the big view, here's the North Star with like, here's your job and here's how you fit within it. Because sometimes I find, you know, teams can go, oh, but I'm this and just my thing and just my thing. I'm like, yeah, but your thing is one part of this whole thing. And if you don't understand the whole thing, then you're not going to be able to, to do as well in this, in this one thing. And then, you know, I think the final one is, and we talked about a little bit earlier in these examples of a failure is build resilience. You have to build resilience. You have to keep going because this world that we're in, no matter what industry you're in, you have to just keep going 
keep moving, keep thriving, even when it's really challenging and really tricky. And there's a lot of, you know, you're moving against the tide. But that if you can build all of these skills, I think you're you're fairly unstoppable. Unstoppable sums you up nicely, Jenny. (laughs) I like how you started and framed it as advice for leaders of today, as well as tomorrow, as though these are timeless traits. Because Jeff Bezos says, to focus strategically, we need to know what's going to change, but also what's not going to change. And I'd agree with the traits that you've shared. These are traits that leaders cite over and over again during the leadership panels that I've been hosting for, gosh, over five years now. I joke about you being unstoppable, but I do think of you as a bit of a superwoman. So we've talked about how you've been successfully growing professionally and growing businesses, but concurrently, you've been growing a family. And from where I'm standing, you always made it look so easy. I know it's not, but that just, you just seem to make it look easy peasy. You have two teenage children now. Um, I'll tell you a story. I had a boss, a female boss, and she once said to me, a woman can have it all, Sandy, just not at the same time. Now, Jenny, you look like a woman who does seem to have it all. The family, the high-profile job, the wardrobe. I'm kidding. Although you do have a pretty amazing wardrobe. (laughs) What are your experiences of motherhood and work? How do you manage it all and create balance? You know, the truth is two teenagers, like with an exclamation point, that's a lot. Um, I would say I'm not sure there is balance. Um, I feel really, really lucky. I think having teenagers has helped me be more aware, uh, more current in terms of like this next generation of of people and also for my team. You know, we have a really young team. The average age at list is 25. So I think, you know, <laughs> crazily enough, my kids are not that far off from that from that age group now, which is crazy. But I think they're much more engaged. They're much more informed. I think what's been really fun is that you know, the learning I get, I actually probably get a lot more from my kids than they're getting from me because, you know, the other day my my son really loves music and he was telling me, you know, there's the singer Olivia Rodrigo and it really helped me because we, our app team did a whole editorial about her and I wouldn't have known anything about her if it weren't for him. I was like, oh, wow. And it was all about, you know, we did seem like double digit increases in Doc Martens and plaid skirts because of her style. But like, I wouldn't have known anything about that if it weren't for him. And I think what I have really found, um, the most gratifying is that they've grown up, you know, obviously with lists too, you know, when they, when I started seven years ago, they were much younger and they've seen the impact of hard work. And I think, um, one, one of my proudest moments so far was when my son like called, shouted to me, he was like in his room and he's like, Oh my God, mom, list is, list is real. Like I've just, I've been on Instagram and it's, I was like, it's a real thing. I'm like, yeah, I work for like, a really amazing company that's you know helping 160 million customers it's kind of a big deal and he's he's just like oh wow it's like legit like i think you know they kind of often are like what is this um and then it's funny my brother i remember my brother 
uh, one of our our editors did an, an interview on NPR about you know about some list data and which is a big radio station in the US. And my brother was driving home, was like, oh my God, this is on this is on the radio. And he pulled over and like called me. And he was like, oh my God. You know, so these things were like all the things that I think about every day. And when my family, you know, my mom will see an article or something, or my sisters will will, you know, send me an email. And it's really, it's really fun. I just think that everybody has been, you know, the kids particularly have been very much part of this journey. And I remember once my daughter, we were walking home from school and my my son was saying something about, oh yeah, mom, you don't know anything about tech. And my daughter goes, oh yeah, mom, she runs all the technology at List, which is absolutely fundamentally not true. But I love that she like thought that I was like the CTO of List, which is hilarious as anybody in my team will say, absolutely not. Yeah, I just think, you know, that example of like working and, and seeing, you know, some days are really great and some days, you know, are challenging and they see all that. And I talk to them about a lot of this stuff, you know, they, it's not like there's any mystery. They know exactly what my job is. They know, you know, good days, bad days. So, so yeah, that's been really fun. I don't know. I will say to any new parent or any, you know, potential parent, I don't, this idea of like, you can have it all. I don't think that's true. I think you are going to be tired. You're going to feel guilty all the time. And I think actually all the key team VPs I have in my team all have small children. One is about to, to go on maternity leave and the other two have like kids with under one. And it's been really great because I know what it's like. The other day, um, my head of partner marketing, this amazing guy said, you know, his wife had to go do something. And so he had to bring his son into the meeting. And I was like, that's great. He was like, oh, I'm really sorry. And I was like, you don't need to worry about it. I've been there. Like, I hear you. So <laughs> I think that's the thing is like knowing what that's like, knowing how hard that is. I just, you know, and, and you know, lucky because similarly that comes from the top. Chris has kids like we are really lucky in the sense that we have created an environment. I think that for people, no matter what their situation is, that, you know, we will find a way to make it work. So we always link parenting with working as being very tough. And it is. I wouldn't dare say otherwise. And that's why I say you're a bit of a superwoman. But is there something about motherhood that enhanced your career? Or do you think that parenthood gives parents an edge in some way? You know, I don't want to generalize because I don't know if it's specific to being a parent or not being a parent. I think for me personally, I have found my ability to get stuff done has really improved from having children because I have to. You have only so much time and many things to do. So you really have to just like make it happen. I would say, obviously, you know, I've learned that I don't have to sleep and coffee is my best friend. These are also two two new learnings. But I think, yeah, you just you're a lot more efficient because you don't have time. So you you really do edit out. And also the whole I would say before I had kids, there'd be things I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so worried about this. I'm so stressed about this, this thing. And now I'm like, that is so small fry. Like I don't really, and that's helped me in work, right? So there are so many times where you can let little things really bother you. Like, oh, this thing didn't work out or this thing. But you look at it from that bigger perspective, like, does it really matter? Probably not. Like there's actually, you know, the big things matter, but the little things just, it's just not worth spending the time and effort worrying about it. So I think that has really, has certainly helped me um, over time. Things that I think if I hadn't had this experience, I would have been really like hepped up on stuff that probably was not that important. So less procrastination and more perspective. You know, I can get decision fatigue, making work decisions all day long. So I bow my head to working parents, especially those with young families. I mean, 
I'd struggle because I'm a perfectionist. I watch my sister. You've met my sister. She's a teacher with two young children under the age of 10. And she works like a machine. She's so fast and so very disciplined. I think I'd struggle. I guess working smarter versus harder is the key. So automating and delegating as much as possible and probably being highly adaptable as well. I think I'd struggle, but I think I'd like to be a mommy one day. Might need to work on the man bit first. (laughs) Your children are all grown up now, Jenny. Grown up with list. They know it's a legit company. (laughs) They know that you don't run all of tech. They're in that generation where you're learning from them. That's so cool. I wonder how the experience of watching you lead at list will influence them in the long term. I think they are proud because they know that it's doing really well. And I think they enjoy seeing me, you know, happy in a place that that is, you know, that I'm happy in. I'm lucky, Sandy. I've never been in a job that I hated. And if if it ever started to get in that way, I'd leave. I have so little time and, you know, we're only on this planet for such a short amount of it. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to be somewhere where I'm miserable. So I'm really lucky. And I think they see that, like, for me, work is a very positive thing. I don't go, oh, I have to go to work. Oh, Monday morning blues. I never have had that. They've never seen me have that. So I don't know. I mean, we'll see how they approach the world of work and what that looks like for them and the things that they're interested in. But yeah, I think for me, the biggest value I can give them is just that, like, Find something that you're good at and that you really enjoy doing because those things will mean that you're never grumbling or sad on a Sunday night. You know, I used to tell young talent to follow their passion, but that assumes that everyone should know what their passion is. And if they don't have one, they need to go get one and get one now. It also implies that there's only one passion. Of course, that's not true. We can have many passions and they can change over time. Like most young people, I had no idea of what my passion was when I entered the world of work. I simply said yes to work that sounded interesting, that I might like. I said yes to a lot of short-term contracts. And then I started to peel back the elements that I didn't enjoy. And then I focused on finding work that fit me, For me, that was talent acquisition, recruiting the best people for the best brands. I fell into it. I had no grand plan. It had nothing to do with my degree. I studied international relations and thought that I'd be working in the UN. I took my functional experience in recruitment and I worked across sectors from consulting at Accenture to investment banking to tech brands such as Google and Microsoft. I think once you have enough functional experience, you can work across most sectors. Now, I often tell people to look at themselves as a business of one. So imagine you're the CEO of your company, which is you. You start with a hypothesis, a business model for your business of one. For you, Jenny, you wanted to be a museum curator when you started out. But like 
a startup business, you go have lots of conversations, you do research, you explore the market, and then maybe find that that first hypothesis isn't the best. So then you pivot and you use that word, Jenny, pivot earlier on when you switch from one sector to another. And you keep testing and improving your business until you find the right product market fit. In your case, Jenny, you found a fit with sales, BD and partnerships. And for you, building relationships and being of service by making things better became your purpose, your why. Now, I know there'll be lots of people listening to this and wondering, how do I get to be where she is? You shared the stepping stones of your journey to list. You've explained it wasn't a straight path and you always accepted jobs that you wanted to do because they aligned with your purpose. And that's super because it's meant that you've managed to enjoy the journey as a woman in business and a mom. We're loving you for your honest and inspiring insights. Thank you so much for sharing your growth story with me. Thank you so much. Jenny Cousins, Chief Partnerships Officer at List. Thank you. This series of The Growing Podcast is sponsored by Accenture. Accenture is a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Combining unmatched experience and specialized skills across more than 40 industries, they offer strategy and consulting, interactive, technology, and operations services, all powered by the world's largest network of advanced technology and intelligent operations centers. Their 537,000 people deliver on the promise of technology and human ingenuity every day, serving clients in more than 120 countries. Accenture embraces the power of change to create value and shared success for their clients, people, shareholders, partners, and communities. In this series, we grow in innovation. So it made perfect sense for our co-host to be Accenture's EU Head of Innovation, the inspiring Lucy Cooper. Lucy Cooper leads innovation across Europe for Accenture. She believes that innovation comes from combining disruptive technologies with new business models and human ingenuity. And she's energized by working with Accenture's colleagues and clients to unlock 360 degree value so that they can win in markets and with stakeholders. Lucy focuses on challenges such as cultivating growth mindsets, scaling experimentation and developing breakthrough digital products, services, and business models. She enjoys sharing her perspective as a member of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Class of 2021. We continue to pour audio liquid gold into your ears with Lucy's innovation-driven dialogue with our storytelling leader, Jenny. Before that is this, 
Here's my quick conversation with Lucy. I asked Lucy to share her innovation stories on three levels. On an industry level, we stay focused on fashion tech and Lucy connects the dots with gaming. And on a company level, about Accenture's innovative focus on creating an equitable culture, which includes using technology that shows how good or bad employees are feeling. And on a personal level, about herself and her life. And I have to tell you, in this catch-up, Lucy really surprises me. Lucy, you asked Jenny about psychological safety and innovation at list when it comes to harnessing psychological safety at list jenny talks about encouraging diversity of ideas and people now as i was listening to your discussion i started to realize how it's all very interconnected so can you connect the dots for us when it comes to leadership equality psychological safety in the workplace and innovation? I mean, it's a such a fascinating space and I'm still definitely a student. I'm definitely still a learner in this space. We have had a company join our Accenture family called Fable Plus, who we're extremely fortunate to have. They are experts in psychological safety and they've been working for the last 10 years with Amy Edmonston from HBS, who is kind of the foremost sort of thinker in this space. HBS, Harvard Business School for our listeners. And what it talks about is you have human beings who all have attributes that they bring to work every day. And diversity and inclusion is, and equity, which is we're thinking about more and more, is basically creating the level playing field for every single one of those people, right? So some people are not starting from 50 metres behind. Some people are not starting from 50 metres ahead. Some people don't are not getting a better view of the pitch than other people. So there's a, there's a like, how do you just let a person bring their whole self to work, bring all of their attributes, bring all of their personality, bring all of their experience and their background and not be discriminated against, prejudiced against, or sort of any other holdback and actually, you know, be seen for their merit and what they bring to work. So that's kind of, that's kind of one bit about how do you understand leadership attributes. And we, we know that there's a whole industry built on helping companies understand who their leaders are. From an innovation space, leadership's important, I guess, because you want to role model the right kind of uh, leadership traits like you would in any other part of the business. For innovation, it is about that empathy, that intellectual curiosity and creativity, that ability to take smart risks, like we don't want any kind of risk, but that trial and error, that experimentation, those feedback loops, how to really engage customers, clients, citizens, whoever your stakeholder might be. So that's kind of how we think about leaders. Psychological safety is a really interesting one, though, because that is about how safe does someone feel to express those leadership attributes. So if we say in order to be an amazing, innovative leader, you need to be, you know, you need to be able to do trial and error and experimentation and be kind of creatively curious. Well, psychological safety is like, is someone going to bring that? Or do they feel if they bring that part of themselves to work, if they bring those things into projects or teams or whatever it might be, that it's not going to be accepted, received, used, rewarded, any of those kinds of things. So psychological safety is kind of split into two parts. The psychological safety bit, which is like, do I feel like I have autonomy? 
do I feel like my team members know when to come to me, know what I am good at and do and all of those kinds of things and motivations. Do I want to succeed and progress and all of that? And when we have those kind of two things working well together, then people feel psychologically safe to bring the best of who they are into an environment and understand that that's going to kind of be rewarding. And and that's essentially how you get the best out of your team, right? The diverse team, and I mean cognitively diverse as well as every other type of diversity, you know, people who didn't all go to the same set of schools, weren't educated in the same philosophy of education from the same part of the world, had secondary education at universities that were all the same. It's super important to have, as well as, you know, societal diversity and background diversity and everything else. Got all the ingredients and psychological safety is kind of like, how do you accelerate and unlock those ingredients to to the innovation and impact that you're looking for? And you kind of need them both. But as I say, I'm I'm definitely still a student in this space. The CEO and founder of Fable Plus, a guy called Ilhan, who's amazing, is is being my coach on this journey as I'm going through it with my team. So there's always more to do. Lucy, I can hear the energy in your voice. And that in itself intrigues me. The brain is such an exquisite and complex muscle, isn't it? Those who have mastered how it works can unlock success for themselves and other people and be happy. Now, if Fable Plus is helping you and Accenture Talent to accelerate that mastery and be aware of their emotions and motivations, then I have three little words – Oh my God, this would have amazing benefits on the entire spectrum of talent management. I'm thinking of recruitment, training, development, retention. All this would give any brand a huge competitive edge. So I've made a mental note to talk to you more about what you're learning as a student with Fable Plus, because there's a clear link between psychological safety and fostering innovation, which makes Fable Plus and their tech very, very interesting. Let's just say it's a no-brainer, excuse the pun, (laughs) for everybody with a mind to learn more about this new tech. But for now, back to innovation in the fashion space. Lucy, you're passionate about sustainability, so it would be a crime not to get your thoughts on sustainable fashion. Do consumers really care? I ask that question because the perception and reality, they differ. So consumers say they want a sustainable lifestyle, but they don't always make sustainable choices. And Jenny is seeing the same trend. Customers, she says, say they want sustainable products, but they don't always purchase them. But she is seeing a shift. So how can innovation help consumers like me to be good and to do good and to adopt sustainable buying habits? I think it's an incredibly interesting question that is probably an hour-long podcast in its own right as an answer. But younger generations really care. So we see that in the data of what young people buy, whether they choose to go on holiday and want to get on a plane or whether they'll stay closer to home and buying secondhand and all of that kind of stuff is becoming more and more evident, as is more and more young people being vegetarian or vegan, all of that kind of stuff. The question I guess you're asking is like, are they willing to pay for sustainability? And I think in people who are not Generation Z, 
I think there's been a lot of willingness to buy sustainable, but I think there's been two challenges to that. One, there's a lot of greenwashing out there, Sandy, where people say that something's sustainable and it isn't. It's essentially a PR or a marketing ploy. And that's coming much more to the forefront. So there are companies out there now that are indexing brands on things like greenwashing credentials. And so we're starting, you know, like the Edelman Trust Barometer, I think we're starting to see this kind of sustain these sustainability barometers come to the forefront of helping educate consumers on they think they're buying something sustainable, are they buying something sustainable? So I think that's the first thing is like, I think there's a willingness, but I think people are uneducated on what brands to buy, where to go to get that information, what to look for. And we haven't had those standards set. So like, I think on food packaging in five or 10 years time, you know how it says like the nutritional value, I think there's going to be the carbon, how much carbon was was produced in order to get this to your supermarket. And I think we're going to see so many more like ecosystems and communities of produce coming closer to home and stuff like that. And so I think that's really interesting. I think the second thing, though, is like there's been a price point traditionally for sustainable goods that has tended to be higher. So sustainable clothes tend to be significantly more expensive, understandably, than clothes that are not sustainably produced. So I think there's got to be behavior change and education that comes with that, which is buying something less often that's higher quality that's going to last you longer. That's a behavioral shift from the fast fashion. You know, we have to go through that journey really quickly in order to get to where we need to be. And so innovation can play a really massive role in in helping to bring down the cost of these sustainable products and services, increase the speed of education and adoption in the market, and to continuously understand what it is that consumers want and consumers look for, because a lot of innovation is about, is it desirable? Does a consumer want it? And turning what consumers are actually saying they really do want, that desirability, and bringing it into products and services that then can be delivered to the market. But it's a huge existential question. You know, we've got to change a lot of the way that commerce, product, service, society has been built. But yes, we believe that consumers really care. And we're actually working on this at Accenture with one of my colleagues called Mark Curtis, who who is head of innovation for our interactive business at the moment. So like, yes, we believe they care. There's an education piece there, I think, to help them understand what they're buying. There's a cost point which innovation can absolutely help bring down. There's got to be a huge cultural behavior mind shift in order to get us there. You had a super chat with Jenny about how the pandemic has had an impact on the fashion retail industry. Now, even before the pandemic, big shifts were happening in the way consumers were shopping and leading retailers were already responding and making changes to their stores. And there's been a lot of debate about the store of the future and what it will look like. Now, you see innovation and I'm quoting you now, as the intersection between new business models, radical culture, and emerging breakthrough technology. I love it. Lisa, you make it sound so sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you're seeing in the retail marketplace, which is now, of course, pandemic-influenced? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, one of the technologies like edge technology that's going to be really interesting in the retail space, right? So the use of consumer data in-store, you know, that omni-channel and omni-commerce experience. Like, I think Amazon cashless stores, we're just going to start seeing those kinds of stores everywhere. The 
continued personalization of product. So the post-product world is something that we talk about. So the product being delivered through a retail experience is only part of the experience that somebody's having. And I'm super excited by like gaming and streaming and platforms like Twitch and what they're delivering as part of a total environment for a retailer. You know, um, Car4 put banana experience into Fortnite so you could like shop Car4 in Fortnite. Like that's kind of extraordinary. And so this idea of like, the product only being part of the experience. Young people of today are going to engage in like all types of platforms with these brands and, you know, wear their new Nikes that they've created in their avatar in Fortnite. And that's going to be part of the relationship that they have with Nike. That's going to be really exciting to see. And so um, it's going to be a cool space. I think it's one of the most creative industries actually retail when they get it right. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Okay, well, if you're super excited by it, then let's stick with this, Lucy. Look into your crystal ball for us and paint a picture of how we'll experience fashion retail in the future, not necessarily in the stores then, because you're talking about other spaces and a more collaborative relationship with retailers. There's going to be digital spaces where you can go create trainers. Maybe you'll have them 3D printed in your house if you're kind of in that lucky environment where you have a 3D printer. Otherwise, you're going to walk through the front door of a store and they're going to know who you are how many pairs of Nike trainers you've bought, what your size is, what your favorite color is, how often you buy, when you tend to upgrade, what you use your trainers for. Do you walk through the streets of London or are you a runner or are you? do you use them to play basketball? And it's going to be that kind of experience. You know, they're going to ha- you're not going to have to pay. It's all going to be done sort of remotely through your app or through whatever your, de- your Apple Watch or whatever your devices that you bring into store. And Like that's like, I genuinely believe that's what it's going to be like. And then you're going to go and interact with those brands in other areas of your life. Uh, People will have their own relationships with brands. I think it's not necessarily going to be a store. I mean, we already see that on social media channels. But, you know, as I said, like gaming, I think it's just going to be this huge thing where we go into these virtual worlds. Brands are going to be there. You're a gamer? Uh, I'm a kind of gamer. I I have a simulator for racing cars because I'm a big Formula One fan. So I wouldn't call myself a gamer, but I do dabble in the gaming environment for racing. Wow, we've gone from fashion to Formula One. And now I'm going to say something terrible. So don't shoot me down because I know this is not going to sound inclusive. In fact, it's blatant gender bias. But were you influenced by your partner or who is a chap? by the way, dear listeners, or is this all you, Lucy? That's been me since I was two years old. When I was a little girl, I wanted to be a Formula One driver and I didn't understand why little girls can be Formula One drivers. So, yeah. We started by talking about leadership traits at the beginning and linking to Jenny's story, she clearly has a growth mindset. She shared an example of when she was just 10 years old that demonstrated she's driven to do. She is someone who cannot be comfortable with just being comfortable. That's a red flag to her because we need to experience change and growing pains to build our resilience muscle. And she cites resilience as being a leadership trait. In the last few seconds of our chat today, I've learned something quite telling about you, Lucy. Reading between the lines a bit here, 
I reckon you've been wonderfully disruptive and curious since the age you could walk. <laughs> so maybe you were wired to be the influencer and the entrepreneur that you are today. You know, we'll have to have a nature versus nurture discussion in a future podcast with you just to find out. And maybe today you've inspired some women to flirt with gaming and F1 racing as well. <laughs> I actually know some of the Twitch team, so I think we're going to have to get them on and they can do some gaming with us. <laughs> Dear listeners, watch this space. I have a fun question for you, Lucy. You lead and inspire people every single day. But who is your hero in the innovation space? Uh, my friends. I think I'm like extraordinarily lucky to have just the most brilliant friends, including, well, m I mean, men and women. But for me, I'm particularly proud of the women. So, you know, among my best friends are entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, women who have gone and taken over major magazines in the States and completely revolutionized what they are and what they stand for and the voice that they have. Tabitha Goldstrub, who's, you know, in the UK, she, who's one of the sort of a digital and AI envoys to the government, um, who's written a book called like, you know, about AI for girls, you know, I think is just incredible. And I take like inspiration from them every single day because they're innovating. Like in what they do, they're innovating constantly all of the time. And, you know, one of my friends in New York runs this platform called DM, Emma Bates. Um, so she is creating a community for health and well-being online that's kind of never existed before, you know, so where you can go and find out and talk about it used to be just women. It's not now like women's issues. Like that's very innovative. That doesn't exist. She's kind of creating that market. And so I have lots of innovation heroes that I get to call my friends and I feel inspired by them every day. Lucy Cooper, head of innovation at Accenture and gaming evangelist. My words, thank you for being you. And here's Lucy's conversation with Jenny. Tell us a little bit about how you define innovation. To me, the interesting thing about innovation is that it's about solving problems, but in new ways. Because when I think even about how List came about as a business, it was because Chris, our founder, realized that the complexity of fashion customers to sort of find products in a sea of, you know, a monstrous mountain of, of options. How do I make it easier for the customer? How do I use technology? How do I use personalization in a kind of new way? So I think for me, it's like thinking about these problems, but in a slightly nuanced way. I think another thing that's really important to innovation when I look at it is being prepared to take a leap of faith because you actually can't innovate if you don't try and do something quite new. Being able to leap into like something that seems completely impossible is also really key. And I think for me personally, within my role at List, when I looked at building out the team, because we are really creating something that's never been done before, which is like searching, browsing, discovery for fashion, connecting millions of customers with millions of products. I didn't want to bring somebody that's like, oh, I've done this kind of job in fashion because actually it wasn't going to be relevant. So when I built out my team for the group that sort of looks after our key partners, I actually recruited somebody from Trivago because travel is way ahead of fashion in terms of like meta search and, and discovery and these kind of things. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter if she doesn't necessarily know who, you know, who the brands are, or what these are, because that's that can be learned. But the actual techniques and how we drive 
provide value for them. And it's similar to the approach that we took when we were recruiting for our head of product, we were sort of looking at this concept of what, what we want to be is the go-to app, the go-to place for fashion. You know, you don't need to go anywhere else because we have it all. And when we were looking at that, we thought, well, who's really great at like owning a space and creating a kind of experience that, that matches millions of things with uh, desire? And actually, that's when we landed on uh, Mateo, who's our uh, chief product officer, because he came from Spotify. We're like, the idea of playlists is exactly what we want to do, just within a fashion lens. So it's fun for me to talk about innovation, because I feel like we're doing a lot of that in the day-to-day, just in terms of the decisions that we're making. And also just, there is so much innovation happening in this space right now. So also, if I think about best in class, like examples right now, the people that I think are quite innovative within the fashion space, people like Gucci, you know, Gucci is taking risks. It is not easy to do these things. You don't become the number one brand in the list index because you sort of play it safe. So even the choosing of the designer, even taking a totally new direction. And I think that comes from the leadership of Marco Bazzari, who is one of the most innovative people in fashion. He thinks differently. They're doing gaming. They're doing lots of things that people were, I would say, historically scared to do. Um, really interesting because you're talking a lot about cross-industry and that's one of the things that our clients see a lot is like, bring me, bring me something from another industry that I can apply. And I think that's one of the brilliant principles about innovation is it can be new to you. It doesn't have to be new to the world, you know, and that's invention actually is new to the world. And so innovation is a lot of the time just new to you. And I love like the hires that you're making and hearing you talk about that because that's really tangible actions that a company can take in its culture to bring the the experience and the mindset from somewhere that's a little bit further down the journey and say this is new to us so help help make new to us a reality and so I love that I think that's a wonderful way of thinking about it well and I think as you said and it's absolutely true culture is at the foundation like the, the company culture the approach the way that you look at innovation is key because you can have a lot of innovative people or people that think innovatively but if you do not create that foundational culture or that spirit of allowing that to thrive, you're not going to get anywhere. So I think that's that's a really great shout out as well. The culture part is super key. And talking about culture, I want to talk a little bit about partnerships, which is what you do, because the vast majority of my clients really struggle with partnerships and innovation-based partnerships in particular, because they've come from a supplier-vendor relationship background. And so when you yeah. talk to them about a partnership, they're like, so we pay them and they give us something or, you know, they pay us and we give them something. And you're like, no, you know, value, value creation, it's making yeah. something that's more than the total sum of its parts. And sometimes you can go on that journey. And sometimes we, you see time and time again where companies really struggle. Tell me a little bit about how you approach partnerships, because we live in a world where no one company can do anything themselves if they want to be innovative. <laughs> They have to reach outside the boundaries and they have to go forth and partner in order to to get to that output, to get to that impact, to get to that value creation. And a lot of creativity in things comes from partnerships. So tell me a little bit about how you think about it, how you think about it with innovation. It's interesting when you say, you know, for many people, it's a struggle because I think what is so fortunate for me in the role that I have at List is that it's actually built into the business model to drive the value. So it's actually, there's no friction because we actually don't exist as a business if we don't have value creation. So I think our whole premise, so the, the idea is that every you know sale we generate, we take a commission from. So our whole model is based on driving value. So I think 
we only succeed when our partners succeed. So there actually isn't a friction point. And I think what I've really enjoyed, particularly, you know, I've been there seven years now. And in that growth period, what's been really nice is that I would say early days, it, it was probably more transactional, which is like, oh, great. I've got sales. I've got new customers. I've got this traffic. Thank you so much. But actually, increasingly, because we have the world's biggest fashion data set and all that information that we can share with them, increasingly what's happening is partners are saying, to me, I see you beyond transactional. You're actually a strategic partner because we can get money from lots of places, but we actually can't get strategic advice or data insights that help us do our job better. So I think I'm really lucky because it never feels like a struggle. I mean, it's busy. Don't get me wrong. We have over a thousand partners in, you know, 170 countries. We're, we're definitely busy, but it's not that part of like, how do I get out of this mode of transaction is not so much an issue because I think the whole, the whole business is just built on, on making it better. And I think, you know, sharing those insights is super interesting for us too, because we then get back, what do partners care about? What's happening in fashion? How do we build a product that's actually going to help them. And I think that's always been, for me, a really fun part of this kind of a role, which is problem solving for partners, right? Which is like, oh, I have this issue. How can you help me? And us kind of figuring out with all of the assets that we have and all the teams that we have, how do we take this expertise and turn it into something usable that helps them grow? That's really the, the whole point of our existence in the team. And the other thing is the partnerships in general need to work. I'm sure many of you have seen, and maybe with, even within your clients, Lucy, like where it just doesn't feel right. Like there's a partnership this year, like this is not, this doesn't feel good, you know, but we, um, we recently added on this, I mean, I love this brand so much, this sustainable brand called Pangaea, and they do a lot with like fabric tech. And what they did is they're like, we want to, we want to really celebrate being on list. So what we're going to do is every purchase, we're going to plant a tree. And you know, it's great for our customers. It, you know, it's great for us, but it's also great for, for Pangaea to kind of really reemphasize their brand story. Yeah. You help build each other's Product. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like that win-win attitude. We're always talking about win-wins all the time. And I, I loved what you said earlier, Lucy, about you can't do it on your own. And so, for example, we partner with people like High Snobiety because they are the experts at streetwear. We feel like we are certainly the, the authority in fashion, but we work across all sectors, right? We have luxury, we have high street, we have contemporary, but they're like the streetwear experts. So we worked with them on a partnership called The Next 20, which is basically like, how do we combine your information and your insight with the data assets that we have to create this list of like what's new and next? And those kind of things have been really popular. And even our partners have reached out and been like, oh, I saw this. I love that. That's great. And it's just thinking differently, whereas maybe historically somebody would have been like, oh, are they in our lane? Is it weird? Is it a complex? And it's not because they have something we don't have and we have something they don't have. So we're constantly sort of trying to figure out how do we just kind of expand that, expand that piece. I didn't know that you have the world's biggest mm. fashion data set. And I think that's extraordinary. But I guess the question is, you said, you know, your partners went, OK, this went from transactional to strategic because you bring things like this world's biggest data set. When did you know if we keep going, we're going to have the world's biggest data set? Tell me a little bit of some of the things you've learned about being brilliant at partnerships, because I'm assuming <laughs> on day one, when you were building these first partnerships with people, A, you yeah. probably didn't have the world's biggest data set. And secondly, <laughs> you were like trying to build the partnerships to get the business model going. And like with lots yeah. of companies, the data was like, oh, we're collecting data at the same time. So at yeah. what point did it come from something that happens as a byproduct of building these relationships to a really important part of why we're a chosen relationship partner. 
quite right to sort of say this wasn't always as it was. I mean, when I started, it was 40 people. We now have 300 people. I had one person in my team. I have 50. You know, there's a lot of change that happens. What's interesting for us, though, is that for the whole company, and again, remember the whole point of List is to connect customers with the products that they love. So there is this kind of flywheel of like the supply side, which is my area, which is how do we make sure we get the products. But the truth is, honestly, even at day one, half the company was data scientists and engineers. So data has always been at the core. I don't think we would exist or even be as successful as we are if we didn't start with that key point. And we often say, Chris, our founder will say, we have two key enablers for the company. One is the supply, which is obviously the products. And then the other is the data. And actually at no point was that like a chicken egg. They both started at the same time. It's just, they both had to grow over time. So again, you know, we have 8 million products now, which is about 35 times the size of our biggest retailer. I would say for me, truthfully, at the beginning, I don't think I I knew data was important, but again, this concept of like data being currency has been a very recent development in the world of fashion, because I think, as you said, people are busy. They have all these other things to worry about supply chain, logistics. There's a lot of stuff to kind of uncover there. And I think data is kind of like, it felt like icing. (laughs) I've seen it even in the partners that we work with. We work with the data insight team of Montclair and Montclair has a whole team dedicated to this. This never happened before. You know, similarly, uh, Valentino. So again, these big luxury brands that I think historically obviously would maybe use amazing consultancies and lots of opportunity to get information, but now they're kind of embedding it into their own teams, which I'd never seen before. So I think, you know, we're really excited to kind of see how that's starting to happen. You've been on an incredible journey, one person to 50 people, 40 people to 300. What has been some of the biggest learning moments for you? What what have been, you know, your hardest days and how do you kind of look back on them now and feel so We always joke, like Chris, the founder of List, always says to me, you know, and, and again, it's interesting because, you know, any startup, and I would say like, honestly, I've built a lot of experience of like smaller teams or smaller businesses turning into something. This is, I guess, technically my first startup, but I've had that journey before in past roles. But one of the biggest learnings we say, he always will say, Jenny, it's a roller coaster. You're going to have the highest highs and the lowest lows. And it's so true. What has been the biggest learning, and I think the thing that's been the most gratifying, is that at no point did I ever think, wow, the concept of what we're trying to do doesn't make sense. It's not a good idea. You know, I started the journey at List because I met with Chris, the founder. He was like, oh, I could really use some help with partnerships. I don't really know much about. And again, very humble in his approach, which is like, I don't know anything. I feel like you probably know they were a partner of ours in my former job. What was interesting is that the more I talked to him, the more I was like, this is the future of how everybody's going to shop, how this is going to go. And I think for me, the, the biggest learning is that if the vision and the leadership and all of that is in play, the rest of it is going to work out. You're going to have very hard days and very fun days and very good days. But like the North Star is the same, which is like, we know where we're going and we know it's doable. We don't necessarily know how we're going to get there. (laughs) I think that's been the learning to me is like, without that hinge of like, this is a good idea. I'm super excited about it. And I feel like this is the person that is going to set me up for success. And, you know, very fortunate because Chris came from a venture capital background. So he understands how investors think he thinks about the value and like, how do I create value for my investors? But then also I'm constantly thinking, how do I create value from our partners? Because that's really been my whole professional career. So 
I think because we're like-minded in the way that we look at those things, it makes it a lot easier. It's funny. Some days I'm like, how is it only seven years? It feels like 27. (laughs) And then some days I'm like, it feels like it just started. It is a roller coaster. It really is. But I think, you know, we're up for that. So I love that, by the way, about the North Star and knowing where you're going. (laughs) And I think it's true. A lot of people forget it. Let's talk about trends. And you kind of have had a front row seat that kind of fashions tech revolution. We've heard you talk about data, you know, metadata, other types of data. I mean, whether you're Netflix or List or making sure people can find what they want and what they're looking for in a way that is not frustrating is one of the biggest challenges to these platforms. I'd love to get in your data and look at attention time of like, when do people fall off? And are they falling off because there's a broken product link or they get too many results for blue jeans? Tell us some of the trends that you're seeing that's really helping fashion tech come alive. We publish a quarterly report called the List Index, which has basically become an industry Bible. We've been doing it for about three years now. And the idea being, these are the hottest brands, these are the hottest products, and this is kind of what we're seeing right now for, say, the previous three months. And I think what, I mean, just as a quick high headline during this past List Index, which was for the first quarter of the year, Sweatpants are over, thank God. For someone like me, I do not. I am not a, f- a fan of the athleisure. I mean, I will, you know, over COVID had a little bit more of a of a love fest for UGG slippers that I never thought I'd have. But you know, I think ultimately, you know, sweatpants they had a moment for sure. Sneakers have had a big, huge moment, which continues. But ultimately, that trend from a I guess from a customer demand perspective has totally changed. One of the things that I found the most interesting in terms of the insights that we do, and we actually do a weekly data drop for journalists that's basically like, here's what's happening this week. What I've been most, I guess, surprised by, although I shouldn't be, if you think about our behavior over the last 18 months, is the power and influence of culture to drive demand. Things like Netflix, as an example, the shows that were on Netflix and the products that were highlighted in those shows. So say like Bridgerton or Normal People or, you know, anything that has an iconic look or feel We saw that in the search results. And we saw things like, for example, during the um, presidential inauguration in the US, the searches for Prada headbands, for the red headband that Amanda Gorman, it was like, you know, triple digit. It was crazy. And things like Emily in Paris had an influence on how people were consuming and buying. The new Louis Vuitton couture yesterday, did you see very Emily in Paris and clueless? And the speed from like that influence to consumption and production is is obviously, you know, have this huge velocity. So it, even this past week, we saw huge increase. I think it was 112% increase in searches for skims because they're going to obviously be doing the Olympic underwear for the American Olympic team. So things like that you see immediately. And we see it within like a 48-hour period of like when it happens to when people are searching. So that search spike is super interesting, you know basket bags, skirts having no gender, genderless fashion, sustainability, like all these things are continuing to happen. So on our app, it's personalized based on your behavior. So we'll have like a playlist, like a list, the look of this person or that person. And then it will basically understand like, what am I liking? What am I putting in my wishes? And it will then start to deliver me content that is specific to the types of things that I like. So we obviously have certain types of data science that says this person does this. So these are adjacent brands that would be of interest and making this effectively like a store for yourself, you know, on your app, like that home screen of just everything. I It's like, you know, Netflix, it's like, they know that you like these things. So I'm just going to show you these things. And we're finding that that Customers are really responding to that and we're seeing huge engagement from our app, which is, is again, you know, really fun. And how do you balance that with 
because Spotify had this problem, right? Which is like, the more yeah. you listen to the same type of music, the more you're recommended the same type of music. And then the feedback was, I also want to be know, shown new artists that I might not have thought of. We know the sort of slightly more sinister side of this around news, which is the sure. echo chamber of news. How have you learned from the platform about showing people fashion that they'll like, but also building into that data? And this is something that's way out there, but actually we think this person would really like. The best shopping experience actually can be very, you have serendipity in them, right? Like if I'm in Liberty and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I didn't see this Ghani dress before. How do you put that into practice? I think... The interesting thing about having Matteo from Spotify is that he was there. <laughs> he knows he's in the product team. So he actually knows that problem and knows how to solve it. So I think that's another example of like, we don't have to worry about that learning curve because it's already he's already lived it. So that's already built into all of the plans that we have, which is like, how do you throw in that wild card? That's like, hey, did you think what about this? Because if you're only relying on on a customer to give you a signal, then that's not that's not going to necessarily be a comprehensive personalized experience because that you may not even know what you want until you see it. So you do have to build in that kind of, hey, so we have that with, say, for example, related products. It may not be that exact thing, but it's something that we think or go wear it with or any of those elements. And again, that's limitless, really, the potential of that. We see that all the time with customers, like you ask them if they would purchase something and they say yes, and then you actually ask them to click and they don't click. There's a big gap between sort of the perception and reality. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the pandemic and leggings, sweatpants, sneakers. I think sneakers are here to stay. I mean, they're in all of the high fashion, you know, that Gucci yeah. are doing more of them. You know, they've ex yeah. all these people are expanding their, the haute couture collections of flat shoes. I mean, I think... 100 millimeter heels might be over, or at least for me. Obviously, e-commerce is booming. But, you know, the need for community and connection has never been stronger. Did, like, lists take on a new role and as a community builder? Like, tell us some of the things that the pandemic has taught you. Well, I think what's interesting is that fashion as an industry is, is like a mirror to what's happening. And I think what has been most interesting is how... I would say pre-COVID, there was not that much of a catalyst to change. Fashion as a concept was like, this is all working. This is fine. We're all ticking along. Everybody's buying our stuff. It's all going well, right? I think what COVID did is turned it on his head where basically you have entire teams because stores, physical retailer was shut their only revenue channel was digital. And they were like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, how has this happened? It went 10% of the business to 100% overnight. And I think what it identified to a lot of businesses across the board, all sectors is like, hey, we may not be ready. We actually don't know how to do this. Either we didn't invest in it because we we're like, eh, small over here. Let's deal with it later. Let's see if the internet goes away, which I will say has been a a way of thinking about it probably I've seen for the last 20 years. And then overnight, they were like, and it was funny, one of our clients was saying, you know, they they had a very small um, e-commerce team. This is for a multi-brand. And they, you know, they maybe had like five people and they dealt with everything, you know, CRM, uh, you know, digital sales, everything. And then overnight, the CEO, everybody was like, what's happening? How much money? You know, and they like, all the eyes were on them, whereas before they could kind of be under the radar. And they were like, it was crazy. So I think, you know, that catalyst to digital was obviously transformational. We've seen like, you've heard all the stuff, five years in six months happened, you know, in terms of, of escalation. But I think, Lucy, you asked a really great point about community and how important community was. And I think people being home, all of the cultural events that happened, you know, Black Lives Matter, all of these things absolutely put to the fore that if you 
as a business, and this isn't just true in fashion, this is across the board. If you don't have a point of view or you're not going to stand behind something, then customers will not be following you. And I think that's the thing that is maybe quite unusual from the past where I think people were very hesitant on a corporate level to take a stand either way. They're like, I don't, I want to be on the fence here because I don't want to be on the wrong side and I don't want to alienate. But I think what's happened very quickly is that this customer base has said, look, if you stand for nothing, you don't stand for anything. You know, And that has been very quick. And I think that's leading to a lot of decisions being made, particularly in the area of sustainability, which is obviously hugely important for fashion, which is not a sustainable business historically. So what all of this has done, whilst it has been very challenging, it has really, I think, forced many changes that will be very positive for the future. And, it, you know, even how they looked at shows, you know, people had to be creative. They had to go, well, OK, I can't rely on like whining and dining these same editors the way I have done for the last 20 years in the same way. So you know, Moschino did like a puppet show and yeah, like <laughs> marionettes and it was so cool. And I was like, that's amazing. And J.W. Anderson with his show in a box, like people really thought, you know, back to the point about innovation, you kind of have to be innovative. And, you know, I loved when Mutra Prada and Raph Simmons did a sort of a Q&A on YouTube. That would have never happened before. So I think things like that have been really interesting. I think flexible working, a big key topic, key topic for us in the, in the company as well. But like, all of these things have been really interesting and kind of coalesced in the sense of like change is happening because it has to. But I just don't know if that would have happened, if I'm honest. I think it just would have been a very slow drip. I agree. And I think a lot of our a lot of our clients feel the same way. I've got a question for you about leadership because you're just such a wonderful force of nature. But I do want to just ask <laughs> you about sustainability before then. It I yeah. mean it is huge purpose sustainability, leaving the planet better than you found it. I think yeah. at this point, if you're not part of fixing the problem, you're part of the problem. How yeah. do you think about it at least? You have this sort yeah. of unique position as a platform. You know, yeah. you could argue that you're helping people find more things, but you're helping them find the right thing that'll stay with them for longer. You know, we're seeing tons of yeah. new business models about secondhand you know, yep. circular fashion, a higher quality, you know, the fight against viscose is on, I think. You know, I got a, a package the other day that said, enjoy this parcel, look after it, repair it, respect it, you know, from a, a high street retailer, which I thought was quite bold. Tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because on a company level, because we have a very young and engaged workforce, I think that is super important to them to the point where really they are driving a lot of the discussions about our product and what do we need to change to give customers the information they need to make the right decisions. So again, you know, we are looking at what will a product page look like so that we can give an understanding to customers about, you know, the carbon footprint. Like, how do I, how do I, aside from like the whole goal of like connecting customers with the products, it's like, how do I give them the information to make the right decisions? So we're constantly looking at how can we do that on a product level? On a data level, we do a sustainability report every year because again, that demand is there. And I would say historically, a lot of people are like, oh, I believe in sustainability, but then they just buy a whole bunch of stuff off of brand X and be like, eh, I kind of care about it, but not when I'm there with my wallet kind of thing. And that's changing. You know, I have a couple of teenagers and my daughter particularly will not buy a product without checking on, you know, the good for you app and going, is this good or is it bad? Like she refuses and to the point where she'll go, look, mom, that's not good. I'm, I don't want to do that. It's like part of her decision-making process. When I would say when she was younger, it was more like, oh, 
this is a trend. I like this. But now she, she refuses to do it. She's a huge fan of Depop. I, I talked to the CEO at an event and I was like, you need to create parent accounts because I would literally just like, put, it's like, a, I'm like, I feel like I spent all my money on Depop. Also, she loves this brand. It's called Organic Basics, which is like a Nordic underwear brand. But again, they're, they give a lot of information so that she, because this is the thing is that customers, not just, you know, my daughter, but all customers are really hungry for the detail. It's, it's beyond the products. Like, is this source where who made it where is it made from what products is it made from how long will it last and how do i make sure that i do not contribute to this horrible landfill issue so all of these things are very complicated right and i think honestly at least we're we're really looking at how can we take all the knowledge and expertise we have and just make it better because we believe as the leading platform for fashion we actually have a responsibility to think about this and think about giving guidance I can't tell you the full roadmap of how we're going to do that, but it is a very important discussion that we're having and, you know, very much close to the heart of our CEO and founder because he he understands that area a lot. And, and obviously working across with investors and working with other fashion businesses like this is a this is a very important area to explore. And it's I think it will only continue to become more important. I do not think this is just a hot topic. I think this is huge. and that. People are now, as part of their um, portfolio of deciding who am I going to, not just customers, but investors, partners, like people are going like, what is your plan here? Because if you don't have one, we don't want to be part of it. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk, we talk about sustainability and innovation as mutually exclusive in this point as we help clients and businesses develop. I mean, you just said something there, which I think is such a brilliant value for a leader to have. And you said, I can't tell you exactly what the roadmap is going to look like, but we're working on it. And that idea yeah. of just openly saying to the public, don't have all the answers, going to figure yeah. it out. So talk to me a little bit about your views on leadership. We're, we're all women here. Diversity and inclusion is super important. At Accenture, we're starting to think about equitable leadership. How do you like pre- provide the same environment that everybody should be entitled to rather than providing obviously the diversity and the inclusion but not the equity what are some of the barriers I mean I, I would guess fashion is a fairly female dominated industry but I might be wrong and you know lots of the designers are men tell me a little bit about how you think about it and what do you think are some of the things you're working on with your team and at list to try and really deliver on that leadership promise and, and personally what it means to you yeah, um, fashion as a an overall business has a lot of female involvement, but I would say the most senior leaders are typically not women. But I think for me, when I think about equitable leadership, we, you know, I'm very lucky because, you know, even within our C-suite, there are five of us, two of us are women. So, and that was not always the case. I remember I was the first woman to come into the C-suite at List and I was the first person to be promoted from within like the business in, you know, rather than coming from outside. Diversity and inclusion has become very important to us because we're very clear about how important that is to drive the business, right? Because if you don't have diversity of thought and diversity of people, you're just going to be in an echo chamber of yourself. So to me, I think the key barriers traditionally for equitable leadership are things like lack of self-awareness, right? Which is, I feel this, so you should feel it too. Because if you have everybody the same, where are you going to get to? So I think 
one of the things that we love to have in our CXO meetings is, is actually healthy conflict because, you know, in positive conflict, it's important that people don't just, you know, I was saying this to a colleague the other day because we had it, you know, I said one thing and he's like, oh, I don't know if I agree with that. And I was like, it's really good you're not just a yes person because you weren't hired to just say yes. You're here to actually make this better. Yeah, that's a barrier, like just being in your own echo chamber. I think lack of empathy. So I think a lot of leaders make the mistake of going, just get to work, just do it. You know, not understanding the challenges or frustrations of the team, because if you're not in the day to day and you're not understanding, you're not going to actually be able to give clarity of like what needs to happen. And yeah, lack of diversity and inclusion. It's something that personally, you know, for myself and our COO, you know, who's a woman, we are very keen to get a lot more diversity, particularly in our leadership roles, because I think we've got it in maybe some of the mid-level roles, but in the leadership, in the C-suite, it's just not as diverse as it needs to be, no doubt about it. And I think we do a report with our people team that basically says, here's all the things we're doing well, here's all the things we're not doing well, this is what we're going to do to address it. And Chris, the founder, he has two daughters, you know, I think he he knows how important this is just in general, he can see it. And he sees the value of getting different opinions and different views and different types of people from all backgrounds, because then you're just, you're going to just build a much better team. So I think the barriers are there, but I think this idea of like, it's a pipeline issue or there's, it's just hard. I, that's not going to cut it. Like, that's just, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think you just. That's called the availability bias, which is like, you mm-hmm. only, you only hire based on what your network is and headhunters are men and have male networks and men have traditionally male networks. And it's interesting. I was at Mobile World Congress virtually and the head of Techstars New York was there and she was like, you know, I have really no problem finding female founders, you know, and it's the, it's like the availability <laughs> bias. That's what that's called. So yeah, I, I completely don't buy that one either. But healthy conflict, Mark Andressen calls it, you know, he talks about the disagree and commit model and the the red teams that they have at Anderson Horowitz, where I won't swear, but you know, they they beat each other up on their ideas and the founders do it to each other in front of the, the new associates to show like, it's okay to go to town because it makes our investment thesis better. So we disagree and then we commit. And when we commit, we like get behind the chosen way forward and we are yeah. all completely rowing in the right direction and not so much about inclusion and diversity, but I, I always try and remember that we have some red teams, you know, in my job too, where we, well, we get I to think, beat up you know, on each other. A hundred percent. And his book, you know, the hard thing about hard things is like one of the best reads because you're just like, this totally makes sense. And I mean, I'm a big business book reader. I love them. You're so optimistic and full of energy. Like I think you're just <laughs> such an incredible individual brand yourself. This is the Grow In Podcast. And in the next growth story, Lucy and I find out what it takes to become the first C-level innovation guru at one of the world's largest music record labels and what it means to take it to the next level. I've always been an entrepreneur. If I'm being honest, I had no clue how to run a record company. I was $3 million in debt. Losing all my money was just the beginning. I was essentially homeless. Warner Music is wildly successful. All of our revenue and all of our activities is driven by tech companies. Big part of my job is just talking with people to recognize this is the next shift and get comfortable with it. I've waited for this time for the last decade, which is blockchain. That is the chief innovation officer 
at the Warner Music Group, predicting tomorrow's tech trends to innovate today. Subscribe now so you're one of the first to be in company with us when the next growth story goes live. Real stories curated with love for you.